mean, you know, when they're asking for 20 and they want he gives them life without parole, come on. That's, every, I think everybody gasped at that point. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Episode 22, Part 1, Jamie's Sentencing. I Got Life. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. After the motions to remove counsel were denied, the sentencing phase began. Under the sentencing guidelines during the time, the sentence should have been 20 to 60 years for that crime. The state argued vehemently that the judge should use his discretion to sentence Jamie to life without parole. The argument was lengthy, with the state citing death penalty cases as examples of when judges used their discretion to impose an extended sentence. Jamie's attorneys did not agree. The case decided were of the same posture as Jamie's case. The state went on to argue that Jamie was remorseless, that there was not a lot of positive to be said about Jamie, that he didn't graduate high school and only obtained his GED in prison. The state went on to argue that his criminal career began when he was 14 years old, that he was beyond the control of his parents, and that he broke his probation, even as a minor, for failing to cooperate with teachers and do his schoolwork, and that he was truant. Assistant State's Attorney Tina Griffin made a big deal about Jamie using his mother's death as an excuse for getting in trouble, and that she didn't pass away until he was 17. In fact, his mother was diagnosed with cancer when Jamie was 13 years old, and the five years between her diagnosis when Jamie was 13 and her death when Jamie was 17 were turbulent. After her diagnosis, his mother became pregnant twice and sacrificed treatment during her pregnancies. Her two daughters were born healthy and thrived. The family referred to Jamie's sisters as miracle babies. Can you talk a little bit more about exactly what was happening with your mom? Like she got diagnosed and then... She got diagnosed and then, you know, once she was diagnosed, I mean, they they started going around to the different clinics and, and doctors. They went to the, I think the Carl Clinic, um... I don't know where that's at. I think it's in Ohio, maybe, I, or Indiana. They they went there, and, you know, they were they were hunting a, a cure, you know. And um, she, you know, she did, she did some chemo, and then she didn't do some chemo when she was pregnant with my little sister. Uh, she stopped her chemo. So she found out she was pregnant after she was diagnosed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, she, she stopped the chemo. Uh, she wanted to ensure that, you know, because her and my stepdad had been trying for years. It was like they were, mir- you know, my sisters were like little miracle babies, I guess. I mean, that's the way we we all looked at it because her and my stepdad had been 
been trying for years to have a kid, and um, she gets sick, and then bam, bam, you know, she they get pregnant, and and, and she has two kids, you know, and and uh, you know they were like uh, little miracle babies, I guess. But um, you know, she was in a lot of pain. Um, she was getting a lot of pain medication, and. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was a terrible, it was a terrible time. I mean, our our church, our church family um, was trying to do everything that they could spiritually for her, and you know, the church was you know pitching in and trying to you know help us you know make make ends meet. I mean, my stepdad, you know, he he basically you know dedicated, you know, his, his, his self full time to trying to take care of her. And, uh, I can still remember the last Christmas that I had with her. We had, we spent it in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's where she was living with my stepdad. Um, and my sister and her husband at the time and Tammy, we all uh, drove up to Wisconsin and spent the uh, spent the Christmas with my mom. That was the last, the last Christmas that uh, we spent together. She was gone by the next year. Maureen Kevin was the mitigation specialist assigned to Jamie's case when the death penalty was on the table. Recall on April fifteenth, two thousand one, when the motions were denied to be removed from the case. Frank Pitzel asked the judge for more time so he could reach out to Dr. Kevin for her assistance in preparation for the sentencing hearing. I think I'd like to add a few extra days to Mr. Riley's estimate that we'd only like a week. The purpose of contacting the appellate defender and getting their input on the issues of aggravating factors and eligibility for a natural life term, because I have a feeling that may be what the state is going to look for here. As well, I'd like to point out that Mrs. Kevin, her early involvement in the case was expressly for the purpose of investigating mitigation in the event that we would have had to have this type of hearing before a jury following a guilty verdict if the death penalty had remained in the case and been requested. Since that was her initial work in the case, I have a feeling she's going to be able to give us some information on various witnesses other than simply herself and Jamie's sister. And I think we do need to. We need at least a week to talk to her, and then maybe an additional few days to round whoever she recommends up. In other words, she's done a lot on this. I think the work, the same week that we would be doing and preparing for the mitigation, mitigation presentation at a sentencing hearing. And I do think it very important that we get enough time to talk to her. She lives in Chicago, and get her recommendations and carry them out. In fact, Jamie's attorneys only had two witnesses testify for Jamie childhood friend Billy Hendricks, who testified that Jamie was nonviolent, and his then-wife Tammy Snow, who testified that Jamie was a good father. In a recent interview with Snow Files, Maureen Kevin denied that she was ever contacted by anyone from Jamie's defense team at that time. Dr. Kevin also revealed some interesting information about the trial, as well as bombshell-worthy information that she heard a tape of Bill Little's mother speaking with one of the Luna boys trying to get them to identify Jamie as the suspect they saw. My name is Maureen Kevin. 
I have a bachelor's degree from Iowa University. I have a master's degree in social work from George Williams College. I have a master's in business administration from George Williams College. And I have a doctorate in social work, a DSW from uh, Aurora University. But I've been in private practice and I've worked for the state. So I worked for the state of Illinois and then that was where that job was. And then I've uh, been in private practice for like 35 years. So I do deal with people who have had, I like to say, interfaces with the law. And I have gone to testify since. Mitigation, not like on the scale of a death penalty. So you were there um, during the beginning of the trial, I guess, when when it was a death penalty. I was there during the beginning of the trial. And you're familiar with Frank Pitzel and Pat Riley, Jamie's attorneys. Uh So Uh what 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 do you do? You have any thoughts on Frank? Well, Frank was um, incompetent, but I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to be saying my professional opinion, I think Frank was incompetent. Frank was an alcoholic, or is, or was, or whatever, and a compulsive gambler. So there were times when he smelled of alcohol, we couldn't find him. At one point, he had to go live with his mother because he was, or somebody in the family was screaming because he stole jewelry from his mother. He um, never read the discovery, so he was pretty bad at cross-examining and stuff like that. Now we know why he didn't use all those police reports that were well, He didn't use any of the police reports because he didn't think he needed to. Did Frank contact you? Um, and, and all of the listeners have, have already heard what Frank said, that he needed more time at the end of the motion when um, both uh, Jamie and his attorneys were denied um, the motion to release each other. And then he said he needed more time because he wanted to get with you and he want about the sentencing and get the right witnesses up there for the sentencing hearing and that's why he asked for more time did he ever contact you no by then because i worked for the appellate defender death penalty trial assistance program we were out once they did, they decertified it for death we could no longer be involved so i never got a call from frank my agency never got a call from frank okay. personally when I had no idea that this is was going on, okay? Okay. That he wanted me. Okay. Right. Well, that's what he told the judge. It never happened. Yeah. Okay. So if it did happen, I, I was not aware of it. Yeah. Certainly I would have helped, but there, there, there's he never called me. Yeah. And what about Pat Riley? What did you think of his um, lawyering? <sighs> okay. Again, I'm not a lawyer. What I thought was, I thought Pat was a nice guy. I thought he tried his hardest. But at some point, I don't think he had the physical stamina to do the job. Mm-hmm. Okay? Physical, I mean, I don't think he's a mean guy. I don't think, I don't think anything like that. But I think he didn't have uh, the stamina. And, uh, and, and I think he had a stroke, too. You know, I think he was, he was kind of like supposed to be the nice guy and Pitzel was supposed to be the attack dog. Do you know anything about the time that they spent with Jamie, or? Well, I know that probably Pat spent more time with Jamie. I would say that Pitzel spent no time with him because he didn't need to read the discovery and he knew what to do. I don't know how he knew it, but he knew how to do it. I mean, is there an example of verbiage? I mean, when you, if you're asked, I mean, did you say, hey, will you read this? And he was like, no, or how do you know he didn't read the discovery? I guess is my question. Well, because he didn't know where any of the paperwork was. Okay. 
you don't know where the paperwork is, how can you read the discovery? Yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd have to read the discovery. In my experience with dealing with lawyers, they read the discovery, they go over it, they mark it, they, they highlight what they want to go after. Frank thought, I'm not, and Frank Pitzel thought at the time he could just sit down when it was his turn, read some discovery, and then go after it when he was at trial. So he's just okay? doing everything in real time. Exactly. By the seat of his pants. Okay. Everything in real time. Now, did you get any sense of Jamie's displeasure with his attorneys during the months leading up to the trial, or? Well, yeah. Yeah. Jamie wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. Okay. So, but the, And what, so that brings us to the judge. What did you, uh, what did you think about the judge? Did you have an opinion? Well, again, I'm not an attorney. I thought, look, what my personal belief is, is that I, I thought, okay, what I thought, whether it's true or not, this is my personal opinion, is I thought the judge and all of them were kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to try and railroad this. Mm-hmm. That's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm not a lawyer, okay? So I can't be like, oh, this and that. But I can say, oh, I didn't think the judge was very, I don't know, fair is the right word, but I didn't think the judge was, I didn't think the judge was very fair. It's not, not anything new I haven't seen before. Right. I, I, I personally believe, this is my personal belief, that they were looking for somebody for this murder, which of course was heinous, and they started, there's a list of people, but I've seen it before, police agencies go through, and they somehow got to Jamie Snow. I don't know how they got to Jamie Snow, but they got to Jamie Snow. Mm-hmm. And I probably, if we had to be honest, Jamie didn't have a stellar record, so they're like, oh, we can do this. Because I know some of those police reports about Jamie and somebody being in a house and they're having shots to whoever the deceit was, pouring liquor on the ground, that never happened. So there were things that were made up. So what can I do? It sounds like you did everything you could. Well, it's right. I mean, that wasn't, my job was not, yeah, my job was not, I'm not a lawyer. Okay, so if I'm not a lawyer, that makes it different. But for my observation and... In my professional opinion, the police decided it was Jamie and they were going to ignore anybody else and set the place that it was him. And his co-defendant got off with not guilty and they let her go home to have the baby when she was in jail. So come on, okay? So that's what I think. And I think poor Pat was at the end of his career and nice guy, but I still don't think he was up to the task. And Pitzel was an alcoholic. One time we couldn't find him because he was out drinking. Okay. What do you mean you couldn't, I mean you had to be in court and you couldn't find him? We were standing outside the courtroom for something but I can't remember but we're like where's Frank and nobody could find him and he was supposed to do something or I'm a little vague on that because it was such a while ago but I remember standing out there and we're like where's Frank? And he smelled like alcohol a lot to you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So in his in his uh, in his own sentencing hearing, he said he was drinking between, and this is exactly how it was phrased. I think I emailed this to you: five to eight to ten hours a night, every I night. I would believe that. I every believe night. That. How, I would believe that. How can you even? You're not doing trial prep, and I don't know how you can be in the courtroom every day and put 
be a hundred percent. If you're well, ha- even if you're not drinking, if you're hung over, you know, for that many hours of drinking. Well, yes, not good. He wasn't prepared. He didn't do anything. What he did was he walked in. The guy, the person was on the witness stand, and he'd look at the discovery that moment. And allegedly, because he was such a ace crackerjack lawyer, he could take him down. But that isn't how it works. I've dealt with a bunch of lawyers, and there's a lot of prep that goes into it. A lot of questions, you know. You do a lot of research. So it was more like walking in, like, the seat of his pants. Walking with, you know, I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants. Allegedly, I'm such a great lawyer. Okay? That's the thing with Frank Pistol. And he was a drunk. I, I mean, it's not even a, a, a fairly simple case. First of all, it's a murder case. And second of all, there were... Well, 50, at one point, it was a death penalty case. It was a death penalty case. And there were like 56 witnesses in this case. Yeah, well, he didn't do anything with the witnesses. Yeah. I can tell you right now, he didn't. No. And by the time I was up, he never contacted me about anything with something. Never. 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 And then we had the judge who I think, I believe you said that they were asking for 20 years. and he had, um, Pat asked for 20 years. And the okay. statute was 20 to 60. Right. And then the judge used his juvenile record. Right, um, you're not supposed to because he had a juvenile record, right? Yeah, that's how he used his juvenile record and they just said, you know, basically he could not be rehabilitated and slap the life without parole sentence on him. You listened to the tapes? Did you listen to all of the tapes? Some um, the... of the tapes. Do you mean the, the police interviewing tapes? Yes. Is that what you're asking me? Yes. Yes. Do you remember if any of them were wiretaps or were they just interviews? To my knowledge, they were interviews. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you mentioned um, a tape between... Uh, the victim's mother, Brenda Little, and Correct. was it Juan Luna or Carlos Luna? Do you remember? Yeah, it was one of those two Lunas. Did you hear any other tapes with Brenda Little on them? No, no. Just that one? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I heard a tape that Brenda Little, that the police department had, that Brenda Little was talking to the two people, the people who were up in the apartment building or whatever that building was where they allegedly saw Jamie come out of the building. And she was at the police department when she was doing this and encouraging them to come forward and talk. And then her son, of course, who got killed tragically, kind of pleading on their emotions. Okay? There's a tape of that. Because I heard it. I, I just thought, wasn't that weird that police would have the mother of the decedents calling these eyewitnesses. I thought that was really odd. That's really strange. Why would the police have Brenda Little calling and talking to the eyewitnesses? I just didn't understand. What, I didn't even know that, why they would do that. So there's something kinky there. Okay, so there's a tape somewhere, unless they erased it. But there's a tape. So, I mean, I don't know if they, I don't know what's happened You don't remember the detective's name? No, no, come on. I know. 
I know. I'm sorry. I gotta ask. Right? <laughs> but I mean, I just thought that was so weird. Okay, because I just had never heard of that before, and I didn't know if that's standard operating police procedure. But again, this all goes to the fact that they were, you know, they were. It could have been somebody on the left who had killed the. You know, what this is my experience is they they hone in on somebody and any other evidence that would exclude the person they've honed in on, they disregard. Yeah. That's my experience, okay? Mm-hmm. So do I think Jamie Snow killed that guy? No. Because I don't think it's in his nature to kill. But that doesn't mean somebody couldn't, but I just don't see that with him. Yeah. You know, he's more like a little petty criminal. He was, you know, he did stupid stuff and he had a juvenile record, blah, 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 and all that. But none of it reached the level of that murder. I don't know. So bring, this is a very sad case because I really think this is a case where justice was not served. So Brenda was trying to get them to say that Jamie did it? Yes, yes, that okay. they saw Jamie. Yeah. That they saw Jamie. Mm-hmm. But when I was with the appellate defender, we went to that gas station and then we looked for that apartment and they would have a really difficult time, especially the time of day the, um, the murder occurred was... I think in the evening, wasn't it? Yes. It was sort of dark. So it would have been really, really hard for those guys, number one, to identify Jamie from that building. And number two, there's a whole thing about different ethnic groups identifying different ethnic groups. It's not very um, solid. But it would have been impossible, even at bright daylight, for them to identify him coming out because I think, I can't remember if it was seven or eight at night that the murder, the, the murder occurred. I, don't, I just don't remember. I know it was dark getting dark. Yeah, it was getting dark. I, I think twilight would be the term. Okay, fine, twilight, but it would be really hard to see them from, and the distance, too. You would have a very hard time getting an accurate identification because many times, even on identifications, you see the person and then they go back and try and identify them. They don't, and you're close. It's, there's a whole thing on that, identifying people. Huh? Yeah, I know they wouldn't let the expert, the, the identification expert in into the right. trial, but... Right, and the, the problem with that is Illinois doesn't like that identification stuff. That's Illinois' issue. Yeah, they don't. They don't. But you're right. I've stood at that window uh-huh. where they said that they were looking out. Mm-hmm. And we've since, uh, Maureen, found a, found a police report from someone at that time, a police mm-hmm. officer who said that he was standing, he went and talked to those boys, and that mm-hmm. he looked out that window the night of the crime and he was uh-huh. like, there's no way he no. could... Of course, they didn't turn that over to us. But he said there's no way that he could have identified... He said, I saw people at that crime scene that I knew, and I couldn't identify them from that distance. Correct. Looking out so, the window. But they were, like, they had Brenda call him and call those people and push them forward to identify. All right? So there's got to be a tape somewhere, because I heard it. Or there should be also a, um, a written report somewhere. Right. No, I right. Heard. So you're saying it was Brenda and a detective, and they were at the police station, and they yeah, called. Yeah, and they were on the phone, and Brenda was calling one of those two brothers. I just don't know who. It's a it's a travesty of justice, in my opinion. But sometimes these things just don't make any sense. Do I think there was an injustice here? A hundred thousand percent. Do I do I really think he got a raw deal? Do I think that the system, which we can say is, I would say the system 
needed somebody for that murder and they picked him. Okay? I would say Frank Pitzel was a terrible, terrible attorney. Because he was a drunk and he was not prepared. I would say that Pat Riley, nice guy, but I think he reached maximum work speed. At least he had done some stuff. Do you know what I mean? He interviewed or he did this. But I don't know why there's not an ineffective assistance of counsel. Because it's just, it's just ridiculous. And how could the girl who was his co-defendant get a not guilty or charges dismissed or whatever? Why would, if she was so dangerous, why would they, why would they let her go home to have a baby? Because she was in jail and she was pregnant. Why would they let her to go home and have a baby? And so these things just don't add up, okay? She had and, a great lawyer. She did have a great lawyer. Was it a public defender? Uh, no, she had a private attorney, Steve Skelton. I don't know if you were familiar. Oh with yeah, him. I know Steve Skelton. I mean, I don't. I know of him. Yeah. Yeah. He right. he represented but, her. Right, but why wouldn't Jamie be allowed such great representation? <sighs> I, I, I mean, again, that's the critical question. Why would he be allowed such great representation? Because that's who they appointed to him. That that's who they appointed to him. They actually. And when Amy Davis was the... Amy Davis was supposed to be the public defender, who, but she got... Somehow they got her off the case for some reason. I can't remember why. So one of the witnesses she had represented, one of the witnesses that was testifying against him, she had represented like 10 years before. And she went in there and she begged them. She was like, look, I will I just let my other guy go in and, and cross-examine him. And then they ended up recusing the entire public defender's office. Well, yeah. then they, that's right, and then they got Pat and Frank. Yeah. Under the probably the Appellate Defender Act at that time, where we, you know, you could get appointed to do death penalty cases. But then I don't know who paid Frank or Pat after we were gone, because once they decertified the death penalty, they would not have gotten paid by the state. So I don't know who paid them then. Oh, they were billing them. I'm sure they were happy. I'm sure they were happy to uh, to have Pat and Frank. I I would concur. I think Pat and Frank were a perfect storm. So, did you um, believe that Jamie was innocent of that crime? Well, I have a hard time saying. Again, this is my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything. I kind of knew Jamie pretty well, and I really kind of have a hard time saying Jamie committed a murder. Yeah. I mean, is he like, oh, like, did he do criminal things? Yeah, but they would never reach the level of murder, okay? He's kind of, you know, like, whatever he did, I forgot. But he never reached the level of murder. 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't see it escalating like that. He, he wasn't like that kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, Frank Pitzel, knowing his personality, will never admit that he did anything wrong. And, and that's really the unfortunate part is that he won't stand up. I mean, this is a, a true tr- travesty of justice, in, injustice, in, if you want my opinion. But I'm not, I'm a social worker, I'm not a lawyer, yeah. but I, unfortunately I've seen this more than one time, and I think this case is really, really, really sad. I mean, you know, when they're asking for 20 and they want to, he gives them life without parole, come on. That's, every, I think everybody gasped at that point. It's a, a miscarriage of justice. And it's too bad they don't find the guy who killed that young man in that gas station. Nobody got justice that day. Absolutely. The decedent didn't either. Nor did the family. I mean, it's an all-around thing. It's not just Jamie. It's that poor guy who got killed. He he didn't either. Because there's somebody roaming around who did that murder. Well, and, and saying, I got away with it. And probably committing more crimes. Well, we could speculate and say yes. Jamie wasn't really a gun guy, okay? That's just not his style. Yeah. So, this is the way it goes. I, I feel really bad for the guy, and I think about it now, I think, oh, my God, what a travesty. What an injustice. What a travesty. And um, I'm sure the judge is walking around saying he did a great job, and I'm sure Pitzel says, oh, my God, I did a, such a great job. But it, the reality is, no, they, they did not. Bill Little's mother, Brenda Little, testified for the state. The following is a reenactment of her testimony from transcripts. Bill was our only son, the last young man to carry on the little name. On March the 31st, 1991, he was senselessly murdered, and now our lives have taken a turn. First of all, we get the tragic news of Bill being shot. We have to try to find some way to muddle our way through through the next few days. So the long, endless journey starts to find a way to realize this is not a bad dream. Then we have to sit down and put together his eulogy. Next, we are told we need to pick out his casket. What a long, painful day that was. All you can think about is just getting through the day and thinking how you find the strength to get through it. So you just keep telling yourself that you can do it. Then comes the service, the next most painful step. All you can do is hold your head up and go through the motions. When I received word that Bill was murdered, my whole life took a different turn. I felt to blame. I felt like I should have done something. I blame myself for not being there. So many feelings kick in when your child is taken from you. You have no control of these feelings. It's hard to sit here and tell you just in a few minutes how the loss has affected me. Everything, every day brings something different. Different events happen and you try to deal with them one, each one. Each one every day is like a cut that won't heal. It closes, but something opens up again. I was in counseling for almost 10 years. It was difficult to go on. All I could think about was being with Bill. I had to know he was okay. One of the hardest parts of this is knowing I had to get up every day and go through the motions. There is so much sadness, guilt, and anger. 
You have no idea how long one night can last lying in bed, sobbing, asking yourself why. Many days and nights I sit wondering if Bill is okay, how he's doing without us. I wonder did he call my name when he was shot? What was he thinking? These are feelings and questions that will never go away. Broken hearts, believe me, when I say my heart is broken. It aches most of the time. I can feel the pain in my heart every day. I know even as time goes on, the heartache will never go away. I have to learn to live with it. You cannot put a timetable on grief. You cry whenever and wherever you feel like it. Sometimes you don't even know what triggers it. I still remind myself, losing my mind, loss of memory, feeling of disorientation, lack of energy are all part of the grief process. When I find myself slipping back into the old moods of despair and depression, I will tell myself slipping back is okay. These moods will pass. I know now guns do not kill. People kill. I know children are not raised to kill children. I know are not are not raised to kill. Children are raised to make the right choices and to live with the choices they make. Spending weeks through these trials listening to the senseless way Bill was murdered has left an impact on all of our lives. It will be impossible to forget some of the things that were said, hearing he was shot not once but twice and wonder why. Watching Bill's father, my daughters, my parents, and the rest of the family go through the trial has been more difficult. I will never forget the hurt on my parents' face through all of this. The loss of Bill has not only had a lasting impact on his family, it has devastated his friends. Bill loved his friends, gave so much to them, and never asked for anything in return. Bill wanted everyone to be happy. He will always be missed and loved by his friends. One of the hardest parts of grieving is our daughters having to watch their parents slowly slip into darkness, a place they cannot help us out of. My daughters have been my strength through all of this and have also had to deal with their own brothers, their own loss of their brother. My sister Barb had to hear the news on TV when it was announced that someone had been murdered at the Clark station. She knew I had to be Bill as she knew he was working that evening. Then she had to make the phone call to my parents. This is something that will always stay with her. My parents have had to deal with the loss of their grandson, but they had to watch me slowly slip away, and they knew there was nothing they could do. I could go on for days about what the loss is and how it has affected me, but there is not enough words or time that I could say how I feel. I love my son. He is in my heart and soul. I will love him as much tomorrow as I do today. Getting over this loss will never happen. Our loss should never have happened. I believe in my heart there was not one murder committed. There were multiple murders. We will never have the pleasure of knowing a daughter-in-law or watching him raise children. Bill was just starting his life as a man. He had a lot to offer but that choice was taken away from him. It was once said to me, I might find out who murdered Bill and not know why, or I might find out why and never know who. Now I know who and I don't understand why.
And that's something I'll ask myself for the rest of my life. I could. I, I wish I could forget Jamie Snow, but I'll never be able to. What he took from us was so precious, and my life will never be the same. This is what I said, and I, I, I didn't write this down or anything. This was just, uh, you know, what I thought and what I was feeling at, at, at that moment, you know, uh, in the courtroom. And, and, and I meant it then, and I still do, but, you know, what I said was I would first like to address the Little family, and Mrs. Little in particular. I can identify with what you said, the depression and the darkness. And, and I wish I could tell you why Bill was murdered, but I can't. I speak from being a father and a brother, and I don't think anybody can really say, you know, how you feel or, or, or understand. I don't know, and I don't understand, and I don't know, and I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm not responsible for it. And I would like to say to my family, that I could have been a better husband and uh, I could have been a, a better father and one thing the jury can't take is that when Bill Little walked his life we know where I was at when I said that I was looking at my wife and I am now a member of a small minority of people in this state and across this country that are wrongfully convicted things that they didn't do and I can only hope that I will someday be vindicated and be a member of an even smaller minority of people who has proven that they didn't commit the crime and I am sorry for the little family but I did not murder your son or your grandson or your brother and that's all I have to say that's that's pretty much you know that's that's what I said during my my sentencing and uh, one one thing that I don't think was was accurate was uh, that I was a member of a small minority of people in this state and across the country that are wrongfully convicted. I, I, I don't think it's a, a small number. I think it is a very significant number in the state and across the country. I'm, it's unbelievable to me uh, the, the amount of people that I have met in the last 20 years. I've met at least 20 people in the last 20 years who have been exonerated. So, you know, I, I was a member of a, a much larger number of wrongful, wrongfully convicted people than, than, than I could have ever imagined. When discussing Jamie's sentencing, it's really heartbreaking to see how it all played out. Now, Jamie was found guilty on January 16, 2001, the day after closing arguments were made. He was sentenced on May 10, 2001. Tam, in the months leading up to the sentencing hearing, those days were very stressful for Jamie. Can you give a quick recap of what took place during that time frame? Well, obviously, Jamie was really, really upset after the verdict. He went to the media. He got an interview with the Panagraph. He did one or two radio interviews. Um, he was contacting people just trying to get the information out, you know, about the police reports of Danny Martinez, about all of the information that he had 
in his motion. And that really pissed his attorneys off. So they came back and he said when he filed his motion to get new counsel for his sentencing, he found out that day when he went to court that they were filing a motion to withdraw from being his counsel. Those motions started in in March and lasted through the early, well, I guess it went on for about a month because he got sentenced in late January and then the motion to remove was on the 5th. And then they went in there and then the judge asked him to write all these points down, Jamie, because it seems like it's kind of scattered. So one of the most heart-wrenching things to me was looking at the letters that Jamie had written to his to his counsel, um, but especially the handwritten motion. The pages, they were all different sizes. They didn't have lines on them. And as Jamie mentioned, he used a four-inch carpenter's pencil to write it. So, the, you know, because the judge ordered him to write everything down, but he didn't give him the proper tools to even write it. I mean, Jesus, he could have given him a notebook and a pen. But, you know, Jamie did it. And, and as we heard, he, he absolutely called his attorneys out on every, every single witness, every single item that was not presented to the court or, you know, the jury never heard. So to me, in, in these handwritten letters, his desperation was obvious. And he was furiously trying to save himself because no one else was there to help him. I mean, to me, this it further confirms his innocence. I mean, he's innocent. So, so he knew they were all lying. He knew they were all lying. If you're innocent, then, you, then they have to be lying, right? So he obviously wasn't just grasping at straws. He was, he was using what little discovery he had at the time in an effort to prove it. So now we know so much more, and still the courts refuse to acknowledge that. I, I, I just can't see a judge worth their salt reading all of this and looking at the newly discovered evidence and, and what they withheld and then just dismissing it. it. You know, it's just insane to me. And the, and the judge didn't even address these issues in court, everything that he wrote down. He just dismissed both of their motions you know, and, and as Jamie said, the only the only ones that, that wanted his attorneys to stay on the case were the judge and the state's attorney. You can just see his frustration throughout this whole process. Tam, what did the defense do to prepare for the actual sentencing hearing? Well, I mean, not much. Again, as, as Jamie said, they came in the night before his sentencing hearing. They did have letters. They had a report from Maureen Coven, who was a mitigation specialist. She should have been on the stand. They had Tammy Snow and Billy Hendricks on the stand. And, I, you know, I like Bill. I've always liked Billy, but seriously, he didn't do much with regards to pleading Jamie's case. They could have brought his sisters up there. They could have brought his stepfather up there. They could have brought, you know, I mean, his sister's a good standing in the in the Bloomington community. His, you know, and Robin was for sure on the front page of the pantograph saying that he didn't do this. And they were all in all in good standing. He could have brought people from Florida, people that he worked for, people that trusted him with the keys to their house to show he had rebuilt his life. He was doing good. But none of that, none of that. They had Billy Hendricks and Tammy Snow. And that's it. I don't know if anything would have made a difference to this judge because he presided over Susan's trial as well. 
He knew all of the evidence that wasn't presented at Jamie's trial. He disallowed some of the things from coming in. He tried to put on that he was being fair, but the but the fact is he wasn't. He, he Not even close to being fair. It was just a farce. One of the last things that Jamie said in, in that handwritten motion was Frank Pitzel and Pat Riley, clearly negligent, had an impact on the jury's verdict. That alone is a clear violation of my constitutional rights. Please give their motion to withdraw before they cause more harm to my case. They were nothing but negligent and unprepared. If he would have had another attorney for that sentencing, I think that it would have, it could have made a difference. I mean, I asked Jamie this, I mean, do you really think it would have made a difference? And he was saying that they could have forced them to look at this issue. If it was a new attorney, then all of a sudden they have to turn over all the discovery and allow that attorney to go through it to see what happened and how they were negligent. If he could have afforded a new attorney, then he could have just gotten one, but the state wouldn't allow him to have one. So as usual, Jamie's words really say it best when it comes to how his defense team prepared for the hearing. Yeah. Leslie, how did the sentencing hearing go on May 10th? Well, first, Bill Little's mother testified, Brenda Little, and she talked about the tragedy of losing and burying her son and how she blames herself and was in counseling for almost 10 years. She said she felt guilt and anger and wonders about her son at night, and she talked about how her heart was broken with grief and despair. And she talked about how she wonders why her son was shot twice. And she spoke about how her sister and her husband and her daughter and parents were all affected. And thus, this wasn't one murder. It was many. And she said she wishes she could forget Jamie Snow, but she never will. Billy Hendricks testified next for Jamie. And he said he's known Jamie since he was 12. And he was never violent. He said Jamie became part of their family. They did normal wild teenager stuff, but they always had to stick up for Jamie because they didn't have a backbone. On cross, Renard made it a point to get him to admit that part of the, the wild things they did as kids were to drink and party and commit crimes and disobey their parents. Um, and that was all Renard asked him. And then Jamie's wife, Tammy, testified next, and she said that her and Jamie separated three years ago and that they shared five children from ages four to 17. And she said he was never violent and did not hit her or their kids ever. And she said he's a normal person who loves his kids and takes care of them, and his kids love him too. After this witness testimony, State's Attorney Tina Griffin spent 33 pages of transcript arguing to the judge that he had the authority to sentence Jamie to natural life instead of up to 60 years. And the judge didn't seem like he was into it at first. What went on during those discussions? Well, Tina Griffin then spoke to the court and said that she knows the state's position for the sentencing range is 20 to 60 years, but the judge can invoke a natural life sentence due to aggravating factors with murder having been committed during the course of other felonies. She cited several pages of case law to support her claims that Jamie was eligible for that sentence. And then the judge asked if any of those cases actually had a jury, and none of them did. They were all bench trials. But she still said it didn't matter, and the judge could go ahead and decide himself. The judge argues that she needed to include the jury on proving certain aspects of this during the trial in order for it to be considered now. And Jamie's lawyer responded and said that the appropriate sentence range is 20 to 60 years, that the jury was not given explicit instructions to consider these additional factors for a sentence. 
The judge said that right now they need to determine the maximum amount of time that Jamie can receive and if he can get more than 60 years. So they take a recess and they come back and he actually sticks it to the prosecutor pretty good and keeps reminding her that the jury never indicated anything about which aggravating factors were present. They just found him guilty. And he doesn't know if he can go ahead and then interpret which they thought was the aggravating factor now. So Griffin continues with case law and explains that in other cases, it was the judge who interpreted the aggravating factors later, making the person found guilty by the jury eligible for natural life. But those are all death penalty cases. So she says that actually then makes her case even stronger because, quote, if you can get a general verdict to prove that aggravating factors exist to get death, then why wouldn't you be able to use that verdict to do something less than death, which is natural life? So the judge continued to question her and flat out asked her if she thinks he can interpret what is brutal or heinous or what felony was taking place and how it could still be a jury determination then. He asks if he can just simply find that there was intent to kill, if that's enough. And she says, yes, according to Supreme Court's case law, that's it. So Frank Pitzel interrupts and reminds them that those are all the death penalty cases where the defendant waived the jury consideration for eligibility for death, and that all the jury did here in Jamie's case was make a general guilty verdict. They did not list those aggravating factors in their verdict before they were let go, so the judge can't sit there and go back and interpret it. He says he didn't actually read those cases, but that's what he thinks. And the judge then says he actually didn't read them either. So he said, let's take a 10-minute recess for me to read them. Um, and he does, and he comes back, and he says he, he just read them all. They were 100 pages long, and it's actually pretty simple, that the general verdict is good enough because felony murder in Illinois already requires those aggravating factors to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt for that general verdict. And since the jury found him guilty of that felony first-degree murder, he can actually extend the sentence to natural life. So then he just says that he'll go ahead and accept their arguments for sentencing next. So Jamie got resentenced and one of those factors were dropped. I'd have to go back and look at that resentencing. And, and my question is, it seems like he would have been eligible to be resentenced. I mean, if they're saying that all of these factors are included and that's why he's eligible for life without parole, then if one of them is dropped, doesn't that change? I mean, does that make him eligible for a different sentence, like the 20 to 60? And we're going to have the uh, Curtis and Christina Lovelace on um, coming up soon on on an episode. And that was one of the questions that I had for them. Do y'all have any thoughts on that? Does that make sense? I don't know the general rules on what qualifies uh, for resentencing. So that'd be a great thing to ask them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the thing is that what I understood is that those three things that Tina Griffin kept saying during the closing arguments needed to be proved to that he did it while he was committing another crime. He knew it would cause bodily harm and injury, and he had the intent to kill that in order to convict somebody in Illinois, you need those three things. And then those three things also just happen to be the same exact criteria for the judge to extend the sentence to natural life. So the jury never had a hand 
in extending this to natural life. They never knew about it. They never knew it was possible. You know, and that could have actually affected their their decision making because juries have been known to do that to kind of compromise and say, okay, well, you know, we don't really, we don't really know. So the most he can get on this is, you know, 10 years, 20 years. Let's just, um, let's just go with that and clear our conscience and leave. But, you know, they never in their verdict had to go and say he was over the age of 18 when he did this. He knew Bill Little was going to die because he shot him twice. And um, this was heinous, a heinous crime. They didn't spell that out. But because it's the same exact criteria, they just were like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just go and use that here right now. And, you know, say it's the same kind of like copy paste. I mean, that's an, that's an excellent point. I have so many questions about that and, and the motion and every, you know, everything that, how this whole thing shook out. I appreciate you looking into that so deeply because it just, it seems so important. And the fact that you're, that the jury didn't even know about the discretion that the judge has to be able to basically usurp their decision. You know, that's, that's a very interesting point. And that, again, that'll be a question for the Lovelaces. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of complex too, uh, that whole thing. So hopefully we can hash all that out in that uh, discussion. There is a lot of questions here when you look at it because the jury made their decision. So I don't know in jury instruction if it's necessary or I don't know the law on that, to be honest with you, if they need to know that the judge has the right to really overstep their decision. Leslie, during the sentencing hearing, was Tina Griffin as animated as she was during the trial? Yeah, she was. Um, And she spoke a lot longer than the defense again. And she assassinated Jamie's character and put her own spin on his childhood trauma. And, you know, it was awful. She started by saying that it was a senseless act in the killing of an 18-year-old young man on Easter during a robbery where Jamie only got $100 and he caused the most severe consequence life could have for Bill Little. She says he shot him twice to try to make sure Bill couldn't live to tell what happened and he never showed any remorse. He's heartless. She said that evidence showed he actually bragged about it for the past 10 years She said he therefore deserves the maximum sentence. But then she goes into a rant about how he was before the crime and that he didn't even graduate from high school and he only got a GED because he was incarcerated, as if that doesn't count anymore. And she said that he has no work history. He actually only worked for a few years at the tree service. So all that testimony about him being a hard worker is false. She said what they have here instead is a career criminal who started when he was 14 years old for burglary and getting in trouble at school and with his parents. And she went on about he was truant and he smoked pot. And she said he couldn't say all this happened because his mother died because she died when Jamie was 17, not 14. And he was already in trouble when he was 14. And she says he went on to commit adult offenses when he was just 17. She said with his other offenses, by the age of 35 now, he's only been off probation or parole or out of custody for just two years. And she said that shows he's not capable of living a law-abiding life. And she said that he's senseless and cold-blooded. So Pat Riley spoke next on behalf of Jamie, and he points out that all the testimony showed Jamie was nonviolent and none of the crimes listed by the state were violent offenses. 
He said the pathologist testified that Bill was killed within 30 seconds, so he wasn't tortured, and that doesn't make that an aggravating factor. He cited a report by the professional saying that Jamie was neglected at a young age, and he asked for 30 years. His speech was only two pages of transcript, though, and then Jamie spoke, and then we know how it ended. The judge said Jamie has a history of not being able to be rehabilitated, so he will be sentenced to natural life with a credit of 590 days. There was a motion to reconsider the sentence on May 17th, and the judge denied it. He said he carefully considered the mitigating factors and determined the appropriate sentence, and it was just two pages long again, and that was it. I mean, it's pretty amazing that Frank Pitzel's sentencing hearing was so long and that he had all of these experts it was, I can't remember, 80 pages or, or more. And he had all of these experts and the judge was so sympathetic to him. It just makes me sick. It was almost like the judge, I, I don't know if y'all got the sense of this when you were reading it, because even when they were going through the motion, they were like, you know, no, you can't have that much time. No, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this done. So the judge was really rushing it up. He wanted to get that sentencing done by, you know, April and Everything just seems so rushed. And these decisions, I mean, you you said he took 10 minutes, a recess for 10 minutes and supposedly read 100 pages. I mean, you know, that doesn't that doesn't even make any sense. It's a complete disregard for justice, for thoughtful consideration of this life without parole sentence. Once again, this case showed me how much power and it's just unbelievable to me how much power prosecutors have. Griffin took a judge who wasn't really on board and convinced him that he had the right and the duty to sentence Jamie to life. And he runs off and claims that he read 100 pages in 10 minutes. He just basically complied with what she wanted. I'm not convinced that he wasn't on board or that that wasn't the plan to begin with. And that may sound like conspiracy theory. But like I said, I mean, he sat through Susan's trial. He knew what the evidence right. he was. Knew the facts. He, knew, he knew the facts. He knew what could have been presented. And he, you know, he disallowed it. I mean, he's the one that signed for uh, wiretaps to be put on put on Karen Strong's and Denny Hendricks and, you know, these all these, you know, tapes we still don't have. And that was never mentioned. And there was nothing ever, ever brought forward about that. I think he's he's culpable in this. I think he put on a show because he wants to be on record as appearing as fair when this goes up on appeal. When I was reading it and I got to that line where he's like, wait a minute. So, Tina Griffin, are you telling me that you think I have the authority to do this right now? Is that what you're saying to me? What do you think? I was like, there's no, there's no effing way. Like, <laughs> this is a show. Like, he, there's no way he's asking her for direction. And I'm thinking right in front of Jamie, right in front of his lawyers, right in front of everybody. Th- there's no way. Like, that's um, a great point. Uh, he, and then he said so many times later on, I just want to clearly make sure I understand the state's position on this. And then he recaps what she wants. And he's like, is that correct? And then he goes to Pitzel. Oh, is that correct? So it's it's true what you're saying. He just wanted to get this on the record um, so that he could be relieved of any kind of responsibility for this after that. You know, it's, you know, it's pretty clear. And then when they go to 
do the motion to reconsider the sentencing. It's literally two pages. And all he says was, no, I made the appropriate decision. There was no arguing about it. There was no, there was no back and forth. There was no, I don't know if, you know, maybe Pitzel's brief, it was supposed to be very detailed and maybe they all all already read it. So the hearing was only to hear the judge's response to that, but it, you know, it was just so short, you know, so what you're saying is true. It was clear that this was, (laughs) this was what was going to happen all along. And I'm just surprised that Frank Pitzel and Pat Riley didn't know about this before. Otherwise, they definitely would have read those papers and they definitely would have had much more to say during their arguments. And this is the problem with those those types of motions and motions that go up being decided by the judge that, I mean, very rarely does a judge go, oh, I made a mistake. They're going to stand by their verdict. He's going to stand by that sentence. Because it was, he, you know, he made the judgment call. And then again, with him laying it out like that, because it's, it's very hard for a judge above to overturn something that appears that a judge clearly, in other words, he covered his ass. I mean, that's, that's basically, he covered his ass for appeals. And that's what he did. The other thing that I noticed um, was how Tina Griffin could, once again, override the truth and the facts and put her own little spin on everything to then influence Jamie so severely. And a really good example of that is how she says his GED doesn't count because he only got it when he was in prison, like as if he would have never done that before. Or how his mother didn't die till he was 17. So, you know, he can't go and say, he had a bad childhood because in fact she wasn't dead until he was 17, but she had cancer. So she was suffering. This woman, she was sick. No, (laughs) Jamie was suffering with that. And the only thing that Tina Griffin could say about Jamie being a bad kid was she literally said he smoked pot. He didn't do his homework and he didn't listen to his teachers and his parents. And he was truant. How can you, how can you even bring that up? I mean, you smoked weed and you skipped school and you didn't do your homework. Oh, she yeah, screwed all out there. I mean, 33 pages worth. You were a child criminal from day one before your poor mother lost her life from the worst thing in the world. You, you know, you were already headed down this path. And then it's like the judge believed that and took that at face value because when he goes and he sentences them and he says, you cannot be rehabilitated. He didn't say it nastily. He didn't say it like, you know, you're a bad person. And you cannot be rehabilitated. He just made like one line that was like so clinical, just like, you know, you have a history of not being able to follow the law and stay out of custody and you cannot be rehabilitated. You know, it was like a minor detail, but it was obviously because of everything that Tina Griffin said. So, you know, it was just unbelievable. She had so much power, like you said, Bruce, and she led the entire hearing. And she's, once again, the one who gets to tell the story about Jamie his whole entire life, even though she probably, besides threatening him with the death penalty that day in the interview room when he was arrested, she probably never talked to him alone again. We have to keep in mind, too, that Griffin stood up there and talked as long as she did, as we keep saying, 33 pages. Jamie didn't have anybody to stand up and give a defense for him and his life. It was all Tina Griffin. I think it's a, uh, and you know, and that goes back to the, to the mitigating, uh, the, the mitigation. I mean, he could have had his sisters, primarily Leslie Snow, who there the whole time. I mean, what people may not know is that his mother was a devout Christian 
she was pregnant and she, you know, and that did, Leslie, that's a great point because it started a lot sooner. I mean, it was even in the paper. She had, uh, she was pregnant and she did not take any chemo. Yeah, she had, she wanted to keep her baby healthy. She wanted to have her baby. So she refused treatment, which means you are sick. You know, you're really sick if you can't take any kind of meds for pain when you're basically dying from lung cancer and you're keeping your child, you know, you're and you're pregnant. Right. And there was a lot, a lot going on. There was a lot of laying on of hands, people from church coming over there all the time, helping to take care of food and 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 pray with her and and those types of things, you know, and that's just a stressful environment. It's a constant reminder that that your mother required this. It puts you know, a little different focus on the entire thing because Tina Griffin just says, no, she didn't die till you're 17. She ignores all the suffering that the family went through before, you know, prior to that. I think what you're saying is so important. If the court would have heard what you just said and they could have actually heard what really happened in Jamie's life, they'd have a different perspective. They just heard Tina Griffin say, no, you were a bad kid long before your mom died. Yeah. And another thing is he was a stable, good person. He was dating. Tammy, when all this was going on, and when his mother died, he kept that relationship going and he moved in with her. And, you know, within a couple years, they had their first child together and they went on to have four kids together. So he he was with her for a very long time after his mother died. That is that is stability. And all those children, I mean, he took care of them. He loved them. And I don't know. It's just unbelievable that you could, you know, you could twist that around so bad and make it like he was, you know, a terrible father, an absent father and um, a career criminal and couldn't hold a job, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. Well, you know, my mom died. I moved in with the only people who loved me and I made a family and and I, I took care of them at a young age. And then by the time I was 31 years old, I had a very successful business going for me. Uh, that sounds like that sounds fantastic. That sounds great. That sounds like the type of things that today motivational speakers will say when they're trying to help you open up your own business, you know, find your reason why. So, you know, it's just amazing to me that she can take that and twist it into uh, something terrible. Right. And, and he, he had successfully completed parole. He moved. He never went back after he got out of prison because he knew Bloomington was not good for him. He did a lot of things. He he moved to Florida and he slept in a truck while he worked till he could make enough money to get his own place. Then he started building it up, started doing side jobs. Like, why doesn't that count? Now, you can't say you cannot be redeemed when you've been doing great. No matter what happened before, you did. I mean, you're right. He was with Tammy for, for, for all of those years. And he, and then he did go there and started a business. I mean, why doesn't that count? And again, with the mitigation that could have, you know, he could have had witnesses up there saying, you know, they found him very trustworthy. I mean, he had a, you know, like a friend of his that owned a tree service, you know, had this big sprawling house, you know, and was like, here's my keys, take care of my dogs, water my plants while I'm gone. He didn't steal anything. He didn't do anything. He did. He was turning everything over. He was making everything better, but that doesn't count. She completely 
discounts all of that. It's so hard when you've lived under a cloud of being untrusted. You know, if somebody doesn't trust you, he started a whole new life. It's even harder to overcome that, you know, just like it's it's hard to to get out of the projects, you know, it's hard when you don't have that life, that foundation of family that's going to, you know, or people around you, you know, that are going to lift you up and help you. It's a very difficult thing to do to overcome circumstances sometimes that you were born in. And it's just amazing that he went down there and did all of that and then got a house and then had his kids come down. I mean, the whole nine yards, he was doing everything right. And he's going to do it again. You know, if he ever gets out, he well, yeah. when he gets out, he has no problem. He wants to do the same thing. You know, he wants to have his own job again, his own life. I mean, he even says all the time, maybe I'll work for my son and go back to doing drywall. But um, that's what he wants to do. And he wants to take care of his grandkids. And he's got doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. He's got no problem starting over again. No problem at all. You know, Tam, when you lay out all the details of Jamie's life, you know, how you said he started a new life. Um, It just shows how absurd this entire thing is. Um, Everything you said completely contradicts what the judge said, that he can't be rehabilitated. If the defense would have made, I don't know, like you said, I don't know if it would have made a difference, but the defense could have brought on a lot of people that you mentioned in Jamie's life that could have told his story. I don't know if it would have made a difference, but they didn't even make the effort. Mm Mm-mm. They, not, no, no, they didn't even make the effort. I mean, that's very well said. They didn't even try. But Jamie's life, as you laid it out, and I know this is, you know, not, it's an abbreviated version. He did so many more things, positive things to rebuild his life. It shows, like you just said, uh, what Leslie said about it, motivational speakers, how they, you know, second chances and, and starting new lives and going down new paths. He did all of that. And it was completely ignored by the judge and the, you know, the court in general and the prosecution um, completely ignored it and lied and covered it all up. They didn't want anybody to hear about the good stuff. And, you know, it's still important to him to live that way. I mean, for example, you know, when when I first started helping him, I put up like many people do, you know, I put up like a JPay where people could put money on his account and then I told him about it and he was like, take that down. He's like, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm just asking for stuff. I'd, I'm not that person. You know, if they want to donate, they can donate to, you know, uh, the support cause. Right. But I don't I don't want them putting money. It was the first time and one of the rare times, you know, where he was adamant about, oh, gosh, no, don't do that. Because I don't want people to think that I'm just trying to take advantage or. You know, I, I I need money for support. That's what that you know. That's what we need. If they want to give, they can give to that. But do not ask them to put money on my commissary or books or anything like that. I was like, okay. <laughs> his focus. I mean, over the years, just listening to him talk. I mean, his focus is always on his family. Mm-hmm. He's never he loves- never asking for people to feel sorry for him. He's he always brings up how his family has suffered. Yeah, that's true. I just think that's his character. I think over a period of time, um, you can't that you can't put on a show for that long. I mean, he's sincere. I mean, that's really his focus. He wants to get out so he can, like as Leslie just said, he wants to be with his family, take care of his grandkids. Right. That's true. 
You know, this this is kind of hard for me to talk about, but Tammy and Leslie brought up a few points about some of the things that Tina Griffin said about me during, during my, my sentencing that, you know, I, I just feel like I had to address, you know. All the, the things that started happening with me, all of the trouble that I started getting in, it, it started when my mom was diagnosed with cancer and was going through what she went through. I immediately became invisible, and I, I've never... I've never resented that fact. I mean, they were trying to save my mom's life, you know. I mean, her life was the most important thing that was going on at the time. And my uh, my reaction to that was to act out. You know, I was just a kid. I was just a kid. And, you know, adults sometimes don't have to deal with something like that. I mean, it was it was really hard to watch my mother go through what she was going through. I mean, she was the glue that kept our family together. And I find it kind of uh, ironic, right, that adults who go through a divorce, uh, women who lose their husbands or, or, or men who lose their wives, you know, through a divorce, you know, say, a lot of times they'll start drinking and, and live, uh, you know, unhealthy lifestyles or whatever, right? Not all the time, but, but a lot of times it happens. You know, they're forgiven. You know, oh, you know, they're just, they're just having a hard time, you know, and that's understandable. It's just forgiven, you know, but a kid who's going through the same thing, they're not forgiven for that. It's, it's, you know, they're just a juvenile delinquent or, or a problem child or, or something along that. You know, I look back on it now and I didn't realize it at the time, but I've recognized now, years and years later, as I've grown up, the uh, really terrible impact that it had on me. I mean, it really screwed me up. I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, it really had a negative effect on, on me and my personal growth, I guess. Pat and Frank, when they did my sentencing hearing, they could have called, they should have called my sisters. They should have called my stepdad. They could have all, you know, testified to what was going on at the time. I, I don't make excuses for the things that I've done as, you know, when I was a kid, you know, the trouble and the juvenile delinquency that I got. I don't make excuses for it. I knew the difference between right and wrong. Of course I did, but I didn't realize that those experiences were more than I could handle as a kid, I guess, you know. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In this first part of episode 22, we heard directly from the accused and what it's like to suffer the traumatic loss of a parent as a child and how it affects adolescence and early adulthood. We also heard Jamie's lawyers acknowledge how important it was to explain this during sentencing and plead with the judge for more time yet they never even contacted Dr. Maureen Kevin, who specializes in these issues and evaluated Jimmy firsthand. Instead, they only used two personal witnesses, his wife and his friend. Consequently, Jamie was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for a crime he did not commit. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. 
The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a QA segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. As it tends to do, history repeated itself, and Jamie's own children would soon suffer the traumatic loss of a parent as just children, too. That's next time on Snow Files.